The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This show brings you fresh ingredients, recipes, and kitchen wisdom from celebrity chefs, authors, and culinary experts. And we're all about living the best life. So you'll gain travel insight, wine knowledge, and a few tech tips along the way. This is a true culinary exploration every Sunday. And I'm all about delectable dishes and exquisite gastronomic experiences as I know you are. So if it's rich or savory or just downright delicious, you'll hear about it right here. I'm so glad you've joined me because summer is heating up, right? And I thought that we would kick off today's show with the iconic and much beloved dessert, a conversation to give me s'more. Yes, the wonderful, whimsical world of s'mores, in fact, evolving into some very mature creations across the country, in fact, where restaurants and bars are creating their own s'mores concoctions, but more on that coming up. The original s'more, which consists of, of course, a milk chocolate square placed atop roasted marshmallows and sandwiched between two crispy graham crackers, are definitely growing up. But there is no right way to make a traditional s'more. I believe that any way you like it is the right way, uh, but they're an American classic any way you make them. And the classic itself, interestingly enough, for a little bit of culinary history, was actually first written down in a Girl Scout guidebook that was released in 1927. And this recipe really hasn't changed since. You were told to toast marshmallows over a fire to a crispy, gooey state and then sandwich between the graham crackers and a chocolate bar, and you had a beautiful, sweet treat. Voila, right? Well, the book didn't give many tips on how to toast the marshmallows. And as the years have gone on, there have been multiple tests and studies done as to how to properly roast a marshmallow over an open flame. Now, it's interesting to note that the type of fire has been proven to make a difference. So it is said that it is easier to thoroughly melt a marshmallow to that hot, creamy state with a mellowed out fire of embers, if you're using charcoal, than a young fire that has big dancing flames. Now, if you're using your backyard barbecue that happens to be propane fueled, then just note that you should turn the heat down as low as possible. And what I recommend that you do is actually turn off one side of the grill. Why, you ask? Because the best s'mores are definitely made over an open fire pit. And the fire fire pit itself usually has a grate or a grill that is far enough away from the heat source that you can heat the graham crackers and the chocolate and get a good melt before you top it with your charred marshmallow. Now, your backyard barbecue that's propane fueled will offer you this same heat source low and slow if you turn off one side of the grill and use that side for toasting the graham crackers and melting the chocolate. Now, you can also do this by laying out foil on your backyard barbecue, which is a wonderful way to, in fact, 
roast the marshmallows and warm everything at the same time. But that leads me to my next technique. One of the things I love to do, and especially with a Labor Day barbecue coming up, if you're planning a s'more for dessert, I like to make s'mores sandwiches by tightly wrapping the assembled s'mores in aluminum foil well in advance of the barbecue and then throwing them onto the grill when everything's come off, the steak and the grilled bread and the beautiful caprese salad skewers, by the way, at chefjamie.com. Then just throw your s'mores packets on and a few minutes later, you get really delicious s'mores sandwiches right off the grill. Now, if you're stuck at home without a campfire or maybe there's no barbecue in sight, you can always turn on your oven's broiler and then stick a foil-lined baking sheet with marshmallows three inches apart underneath and let those babies toast and then assemble as usual, sit down on the couch and indulge. But if you need a serious excuse to splurge, then let me share with you some of the research I've done from bakeries and restaurants from coast to coast that are cooking up a variety of very unique and truly artistic versions of this classic campfire indulgence. I definitely think that the s'more is a summertime treat and an ideal way to celebrate this month because both National S'mores Day and National Toasting Marshmallow Day, yes, I'm serious, actually fall in August. You gotta love it. In New York City, they are making s'mores french fries. You heard me right. Eccentric, yes, but tasty. Oh, say the rave reviewers. It is an ideal balance of sweet and savory Idaho potatoes that are cooked well with the skin on and then topped with roasted mini marshmallows, crushed up graham cracker crumbs, and good quality melted Valrona chocolate. Okay. I'm in. You could always put together a s'mores pizza like they're doing in their authentic brick oven at the St. Regis Hotel in Puerto Rico. You could do that on your backyard barbecue. I know you could. Or you could make a s'mores cupcake like they're doing at Stu Leonard's in Connecticut. Make it yourself by making a simple chocolate batter and a marshmallow frosting and then sticking in pieces of chocolate covered graham crackers as the garnish. Or consider the deconstructed s'more. At a hot restaurant in New York City called Saxon and Parole, they actually take a mason jar and create a s'more. So it's really decadent, bittersweet chocolate mousse that's been layered with roasted marshmallows and graham cracker crumbs almost like a parfait. And then, of course, they top it with uh, a smoke chip so that you get that reminiscent flavor of a crackling campfire. Now that sounds fabulous. But what they're doing in Philadelphia is truly simple, I will say, and fabulous in its own right. At the Independence Beer Garden, the outdoor garden just across from the famous Liberty Bell. They are transporting their guests back to childhood days where they give you all of the ingredients for a DIY do-it-yourself s'more in a brown paper bag and you get to assemble it. They provide a roasting skewer and you sit outside at their uh, backyard fire pits essentially and you create a s'more. What a great idea for your upcoming holiday weekend to gather every around and let them beg for s'more. But when it really comes down to it, I think that the s'more can be recreated to tempt your own palate. So here are my top 10 best tips for making a s'more better than ever. Why not use Nutella 
instead of chocolate or make a peach brie and dark chocolate s'more using the best of the summer fruit. How about making the s'more completely adult and dip them in Bailey's when they come off the grill? Oh, yeah. How about substituting peanut butter or using chocolate chips in place of graham crackers on the outside? For those of you peanut butter lovers, you could always use Reese's peanut butter cups instead of chocolate, or you could substitute the graham cracker with Ritz crackers or even shortbread, or why not make or toast up some waffles and make s'mores waffle sliders? Oh, I'm so in. And last but not least, blend up a s'mores milkshake. How about that? Everything you love about a s'more combined with vanilla ice cream in the blender? Oh, say it isn't so. Well, seeing that you fired up the grill for s'mores, why not consider a rib fest for your upcoming summertime menus? I've posted on the website at chefjamie.com some secrets to mastering ribs because it's really all about the preparation and the flavor infusion. You have to know how to choose the best style of ribs for your palate, whether it's fall off the bone or the little riblets that you can gnaw on or Flintstone style ribs like the Meteor St. Louis. Lots of different choices and lots of explanation on the website under the Think Like a Chef feature. Also, some tips on preparation and seasoning as well, because I believe in a great dry rub when it comes to grilling ribs, but I also believe that they need time to roast in the oven. Now, I know the master grillers everywhere are shivering right about now because I said oven. If you're a low and slow rib type, then you already started the cocktail grill and you've begun drinking cocktails and you're happy already. But for those cooks that have little time, I like to roast my ribs in the oven in advance and it's a great way to feed a crowd as well. And then I finish on the grill. I like that lacquer that comes from the last 10 minutes of basting the ribs with a sweet, spicy sauce. And I've got lots of inspiration, once again, posted on the web at chefjamie.com, where there are a few other things you won't want to miss, by the way. I've posted my weekly dish. It's all about savoring the season. It's a zucchini caponata, similar to what you love about the eggplant version, but fresh with bright, beautiful summer color and flavor. There's also a simple dessert that I just featured in Arizona at the Sanctuary Resort, which everyone was begging for. It's the simplest raspberry buckle you've ever made, just five ingredients, so check it out. Plus, I'm on a limoncello kick, so I created a limoncello cranberry cocktail this past week, which you can add a shot of vodka to to kick it up if you like, and I've shared the recipe, of course, www.chefjamie.com. Now, for those of you in Southern California, nothing says summer like a great barbecue year round, right? But the epic ones, oh, they happen at your house. I know they do. And Smart and Final knows your type. Your happy grilling steaks for two or hot dogs for 52 little leaguers. You are a barbecue hero. And it's all the more reason to stop by a Smart and Final store. Their new store is better than ever, in fact, with everything you need at prices that you are sure to love. And Smart and Final really does have it all. The low prices of a super center, the big sizes of a warehouse club store, and the convenience of your local supermarket without the membership card or any fees. Plus, especially for summertime shindigs and Labor Day celebrations, they have all kinds of party supplies that the other 
stores don't. It is the stuff that barbecue heroes are made of. And right now at Smart and Final, don't miss their specials this week, like their First Street chicken drumsticks or thighs at 99 cents per pound, the sweet seedless green grapes at $1.99 for a two-pound package. And if you're a Farmer John fan, when you buy any three of their items, you save $6 instantly. That's pretty good. Smart and Final, warehouse prices, big and small sizes. Find a Smart and Final store near you in SoCal at smartandfinal.com. But don't touch your dial because coming up, there is far more delicious conversation in your radio. Elisa Bosley will be here. She's the editor of Delicious Living, and she's enlightening us to what is a very wide world of gluten-free we're all living in. Plus, he is Kevin West, recently featured in an award-winning piece on the Tasting Table website. He's a master canner and the author of Saving the Season. And so we're going to put it up and definitely savor all of the beauty and bounty of summer in mason jars. And lastly, Josh Williams will be here. Did you know that you could use a mason jar for so much more than just canning? Oh, of course, a deconstructed s'more will work well too, but he's shaking up some cocktails in a mason jar. Stay tuned. You'll be a culinary hero if you roll that out at your upcoming Labor Day barbecue. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is where fabulous foodies unite there's more right after this giving you something to chew on every sunday chef jamie gwen in your radio elisa bosley is the editor-in-chief of delicious living a magazine dedicated to fresh ideas for everyday health which i love to read and she's here to dish on the fascinating progression of gluten-free lifestyles and more about the natural living movement. This conversation is about to get good. Whether you suffer from celiac disease or you choose to eat gluten-free for health, we're all about a great lifestyle and you'll gain insight into delicious living right here and right now. Elisa, I welcome you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jamie. Of course. Okay. I found your magazine a long while back, but I found your name and information because you were recently speaking on the gluten-free movement. And it's amazing to me how vast the product offerings, the recipe knowledge has become. And I think it's amazing how quickly the movement has gained momentum. And I would love for you to talk about how very big gluten-free is. It has been a true explosion in the natural foods and in the mainstream world in terms of food. Uh, Mm -hmm. The gluten-free diet, I think it was in 2008, surpassed both low-fat and low-carb in terms of popularity. So it has been a wonderful thing because, of course, celiac disease and even gluten sensitivity has existed for years and years and years, but it's only quite recently that it has really gained mainstream awareness and acceptance. And I think it's interesting to see how quickly the consumer has grasped on to this idea that whether you're inflicted with celiac disease or not, there might be not only health benefits, but weight loss benefits and overall lifestyle benefits to eating this wheat-free way. 
Yes, I think that's correct. It's it's uh, interesting because there's still quite a bit of confusion about the gluten-free diet and the gluten-free lifestyle. Uh, people with celiac disease tend to get <laughs> annoyed with people that pick it up as a so-called fad or to lose weight. But, you know, the truth of the matter is that the sales of gluten-free products again have exploded. They were about 10.5 billion in 2013. They're expected to top somewhere in the 15 billion range by 2016. Wow. Yeah, it's just amazing. I think the thing is that a lot of people who may not have celiac disease might pick it up because it's a so-called fad or they think they're going to lose weight. But then they get on the gluten-free diet, they take all of that out of their diets, and they start to feel better. And so those people who might have thought, well, I'll just give it a try, they experience health benefits, and so then they stick with it. So that's why I think it's not actually a fad. It's going to be sustained for the foreseeable future. There's so many people that are estimated to have celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity that don't even know it yet. Something in the 83, 85% range are the, are the estimates there. I think that's fascinating. And yeah. I would love if you would, because you alluded to it, clarify for us what the traditional definition is, the accurate definition of gluten-free, because that will take us into a conversation of FDA regulations and some new regulations, in fact, that we should all be aware of. That's right. And it was a long, long time coming for years. The gluten-free community had been uh, lobbying and begging the FDA to put a standard because up until this year, gluten-free was just a label term that anybody could use. There was no standard behind it. So in the meantime, third-party organizations such as the Gluten Intolerance Group, uh, Celiac Sprue Association, they came up with their own standards. For instance, the gluten-free certifying organization, part of Gluten Intolerance Group, they have a uh, gluten-free seal that's 10 parts per million of gluten or less. Now, the FDA standard, for which we are all very happy, is 20 parts per million, which is accepted to be the level at which it's safe for anyone with celiac disease to eat. So after August 5th, if you have gluten-free on a packaged food, it has to adhere to that standard. Okay, so how do you define gluten-free? Because I think most commonly it's thought of as wheat-free. It's the idea right. of this sort of generic bubble of everything in the wheat category falling under the gluten-free definition. Yes, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Right. And again, there's still a lot of confusion. Gluten is a protein. It's not a starch. It's not a carb. It's actually a protein, a structural component that's found in wheat, rye, and barley, and any other products that are made with wheat, rye, and barley. So that would include things like beer. You wouldn't necessarily think that that would have gluten in it, but it does. So anything that has any of those grains in it, and often oats, because oats are very commonly cross-contaminated with gluten in processing. So my definition, well, I'm going to adhere to whatever the FDA says, because that's going to be really the standard that most people are looking at. If a product can test for less than 20 parts per million gluten, then that could be considered gluten-free. Categorized that, as gluten-free. Does that make free. sense? Yeah, that it sure does. Yeah, definitely so. And I think yeah. it's amazing even with the new FDA regulations. I was in a big mass supermarket a couple of days ago, and I was dumbfounded by the fact that the aisle of gluten-free products had gotten so long. <laughs> 
Yes, and and again, that's really a victory because it was not long ago at all that gluten-free eaters had very limited options, and those options that they did have were awful. I mean, they were truly miserable. Just horrible pasta, things that just tasted bad, right, tasted like cardboard. Bad brownies. Right, right. bad brownies, <laughs> dry cookies. Right. Just, just stuff that you would not call delicious. No, cranky crackers, so it's, right. It's been a wonderful thing because the, the market has grown so much that there's this demand. So now, I've told people this many times, if you're not a good-tasting gluten-free product, you just won't make it anymore because mm. the options are so good. Sure. It's, a, it's a wonderful evolution of the market uh, based on demand. That demand has just gotten to a place where the research and development behind these products is super impressive now. Mm. Can you use your crystal ball to let us know what you think might be the next new trend I'll say. We talk a lot about that here at Delicious Living and New Hope Natural Media, which is our parent company. It's a really great evolution. What we're seeing is now that people are understanding that uh, healthy food tastes wonderful, there's a more and more of a movement towards simplicity in the food labels and the ingredients. So it's great because shoppers are looking now at food labels. I think for a long time it was just, you know, buy whatever's there and don't worry about it too much. And now people are looking at, oh, wait, does this have trans fats in it? Does mm-hmm. this have artificial colors and flavors in it? Isn't and again, the natural foods movement was, was ahead of the curve on this. And so people now in any store, anywhere, Costco, Walmart, uh, Kroger, whatever it is, they're looking at food labels, and that's really huge. And the simpler the food labels, the better. We're seeing uh, more and more research in, in the work we do here that says, you know, people want to be able to understand what they are reading on that food label. They don't want something that they can't pronounce. Michael Pollan has a lot to do with that. You know, just eat simply real foods. Right. And everything in moderation, I like to and say. everything in moderation, Because right. I, I believe in chocolate cake, well, but sure. I, I try for three bites of chocolate cake made with really good Dutch processed cocoa and yeah. fabulous dark chocolate. Because right. that's what life is all about. Your children are gluten-free eaters. Yes. And you eat healthfully. So what are you eating now, this you know, <laughs> deep summer season? Interestingly, uh, both of my children, uh, who are now adults, actually developed gluten sensitivity as adults. Mm. So uh, that's another interesting thing about the gluten-free world is that uh, it isn't something necessarily that comes upon you when you're a child. Many people, they do find out when they're children. But my son, for example, was 19 and away at college when he realized he was severely gluten intolerant. It took us a year and a half to figure it out. And then my daughter also tried it and realized, oh, I feel so much better going without. She's not as sensitive as my son. Anyway, the effect on our entire family was, you know what, we just don't eat a lot of grains. We eat a lot of wild game meat. My Mm -hmm. husband's a hunter, and Mm -hmm. so we eat a lot of wild game meat and eggs and a lot of salads and a lot of fresh vegetables. And we do very little in the grain category, but when we do, it's whole grains. That's really important to us. Um, yeah, a lot of great fresh seasonal stuff as much as we can get. I've been eating tons of cherries lately. Ah. It's one of the one of the best cherry seasons I can remember. I have to agree with you, and it's stretching out throughout the summer. There's a glorious cherry article in a previous issue of yours, um, yes. and there was a an herb crusted salmon with a Rainier cherry relish. Oh yeah, that's to that die for it's so I, good. Oh, I marked the page. I can't wait to make it. In fact. 
maybe I should plan for dinner this week. I think I will. <laughs> um, and, and some really wonderful articles. Congratulations to you. I think that, that your magazine takes a, a beautifully simplistic approach. And I mean that as a compliment in that okay. the ingredients are, are fresh and bright, but they're, um, they're fragrant and, and fabulous and innovative in the combinations and the flavor profiles. Um, and so you have me as a loyal reader. Um, oh, thank you. Well, that's really the goal. And I think that speaks to another big trend that we're seeing is accessibility. I mean, I think Delicious Living, what we try to be about is anybody can do this. You don't have to, you know, jump through major hoops of fire to eat healthfully. <laughs> Isn't that it's true? Not, it's, if, it's not difficult if you have the tools in front of you. And that's what we're about is giving people those tools. We appreciate you empowering us. Uh, you can find nine fabulous kale recipes that you'll love on the website too at deliciousliving.com the magazine and website fresh ideas for everyday health Elisa I hope you'll come back and join us again I'd love to continue to talk about the growing movement and how we can all eat better and live better I would love that anytime thank you as the delicious conversation continues thank you again Elisa there's more fabulous food in your radio right after this so don't go away in the summertime when the weather is hot you can stretch right up and touch the sky it's delicious. It's divine. It's summertime. And we love food and wine on this show. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Okay, get ready to put it up. Summer is in full swing. The berries are bountiful, the stone fruit sweet, and it's time to savor the season and save the season too. Kevin West, whose obsession is canning, a gentleman with a love for saving the season and the author of the cookbook by the same name, was recently featured in a tasting table piece that highlighted his raspberry jam with rosé. I was so inspired that I asked him to join me on the radio to talk about the beauty of canning and his love for it. His book, entitled Saving the Season, was selected as one of Amazon's best cookbooks of 2013. It covers jams and other fruit preserves, pickles and briny things, canned vegetables, and oh, the complement of condiments that includes relishes, sauces, and salsas. I am so glad to have you, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm so happy to be with you today. <laughs> well, thank you. Talk about your jam, if you would. Kick it off, uh, this conversation on canning um, that got such a good response on Tasting Table. I love that they equated everyone's love for rosé to raspberries' love for rosé. Well, I grew up in the South. My grandparents were farmers in East Tennessee, and every mm. summer we would go out and pick blackberries. Mm. And my grandmother, who was a pretty good preserver, would always put up some blackberry jam. Then, years later, we used to go up to Vermont for the summertime, and I loved picking raspberries there. Mm -hmm. And as I was working on the book, um, I spent a lot of time working with uh, the summer fruit for jam. And what I discovered is that the brambleberries, blackberries, raspberries, boysenberries, and all the rest, they all get along beautifully with wine. So this particular recipe was inspired in part by a collaboration I'm doing with a winery in Sonoma called Simi, they gave me some of their delicious rosé to work with, and I developed this recipe for uh, rosé wine along with raspberries, because to me, they're two of the great flavors of summertime. Yeah, they blend together beautifully as well. I will tell you, I've made your jam. I've put it up, and it was quite luscious paired with brie, and we opened a bottle of French rosé to drink alongside, of course. And I love that complement of the acidity of the wine and the sweet beauty of 
you know, peak of the season, I should say, summer fruit. So I wonder what else are you canning now? I love that in the book you talk about how summer is fruitful. I wonder if it's your favorite season. <laughs> well, I guess every season is my, my favorite your season favorite, there's right. always something wonderful in every season to preserve. Um, but I have to say that in every part of the country, summer is indubitably the peak because you've got so many things coming in all at once. You've mm-hmm. got, of course, the berries, as we were discussing. You've got all of the stone fruit, as you were mentioning in your introduction. And then you also have the incredible wealth of all of the, uh, the vegetables that are coming out of the garden. And that includes cucumbers for pickling and for fermenting, uh, corn, of course, for corn relish, uh, green beans, and then tomatoes. And tomatoes are really one of the best reasons to save the season. And canned tomatoes, which, again, my grandmother used to put up every year, were one of the first things that I got into when I started preserving. Okay, so I figure that you're canning and preserving all of those things now. And I would love if we could go back to the beginning. Take us through just a very basic introductory, as you can make it, process of canning for those of us that want to set out to save the season this summer. Let's take peach jam, just as, a, as a, an easy example. Perfect. Um, jam is nothing more than fruit and a little bit of sugar cooked down together. What you're doing in the process is you're boiling off water, and you're concentrating the sugars, and the sugars are actually what preserves the jam that, that keeps the fruit from going bad because of mold and yeast and other kinds of spoilage. So you cook down the jam, and then you put it in a jar, a mason jar, and you seal the mason jar, and then you take that mason jar and you place it in a pot of boiling water. This is the so-called boiling water bath. And you boil it for an amount of time that's determined by USDA research and that's given in the recipe. What you're doing really is pasteurizing the contents of the jar, Mm. and you're heating the jam all the way through to the middle of the middle, and you're destroying with heat any kind of mold spore or other kinds of things that might cause the product to go bad. So with canning, what you're doing is you're essentially processing the jar to make it shelf-stable. Right. So then you can put it in the cupboard, and it will keep in the cupboard for up to a year. Up until you open it or expose it to air, which would then consider blooming the bacteria or any, you know, risk thereof. But that's the best way, as you speak about in the book, and with very specific instructions to put it up. Now, I would love to know if your patience level is greater than mine, and I assume it is. It's not my best virtue. Um, But because I can't wait to open the peach jam, I'll often make refrigerator jam, which doesn't require, or as I call it, refrigerator jam doesn't require the need for the water bath process. So after the jam has cooled in the jars on the counter, I'll store it in the refrigerator because I know that I'm going to use it up quickly. Are you for the process? Yeah, I'm, I'm all for making small batches of refrigerator jam. Okay. And for that matter, making small batches of refrigerator pickles. Uh, they're mm. quick, they're easy, they're delicious. My favorite. Uh, they're so good that you will certainly eat them before they start to spoil in the refrigerator. And let me just be clear about one thing, which is always at the top of everyone's mind when they hear about canning, and that is botulism. People worry, and rightly so, about food poisoning, about food-borne illness. Botulism is caused by uh, an insidious bacteria, but we have a a silver bullet against botulism, and that is acidity. So what we're talking about today, which is making sweet preserves and pickles and fermented products, those are all considered to be high-acid foods. It's a little technical, but for the purposes of food safety, high-acid foods are below pH 4.6. 
All you need to really remember, though, is that almost all of the sweet preserves and all of the pickles that we make using reliable recipes are high-acid foods. And so, therefore, they are not susceptible to the risk of botulism. And I'm talking about whether you can them or whether you store them in the refrigerator. So if you take fresh jam and you store it in the refrigerator, what you may find is that over time it will be you know, susceptible to mold and it might get a little icky. But you're never going to run the risk of poisoning your friends or family right. with botulism with properly made strawberry jam or peach jam or green bean pickles. So I think it's a very important distinction to make. It helps people relax a little bit about the process. Thank you for clearing it up, of course. Okay, go back because you said peach jam, mm-hmm. which tickles my fancy because I love stone fruit. I love ripe, sweet, juicy, drip down your chin stone fruit. And I yeah. find that at the peak of the season, it doesn't require as much sugar. Let's say if you were uh, making jam uh for instance, at the beginning or the end uh, of a particular season, especially at the beginning. So when we're at the peak season and the fruit is immensely ripe, you talk about a little bit of sugar. Do you have a ratio and even some sugar substitutes? Because I like the less sweet jams. Oh, I like the less sweet jams as well. And what I'm really striving for in my jams is to capture that sweet acid balance of a perfectly ripe fruit. When you eat that perfectly ripe peach that's dripping down your chin, Mm. it's sweet, but there's also a tang to it, right? And that's what makes it delicious and refreshing. So in making a peach jam, for example, my basic ratio, and it's kind of a one-size-fits-all ratio, which means you always have to adjust it a little bit, but my basic ratio is one pound of prepped fruit to one cup of sugar. And you also add some lemon juice, again, to adjust the flavor, and you'll get a result that is much, much less sweet than commercial jams, or even less sweet than the jams that my grandmother made, as good as they were. Can you substitute for the sugar, a sugar substitute, or sugar in a liquid form like agave for those that are looking to keep the glycemic index lower? You can substitute different kinds of sweeteners. Agave syrup would work, honey would work, although honey has quite a strong flavor of its own. However, let me just add that artificial sweeteners, such as stevia or others, they add sweetness, but they do not have the preservative quality of sugar. So you can't swap those out in in a way that's really very effective. It's not directly proportional per se. Um, That's right. My listeners will need to do the homework, um, and they're savvy foodies. And of course, they'll, I hope, bring Saving the Season, the cookbook, into their kitchen because there is some calculation that needs to be done. But I believe that the opportunities for jam flavors and combinations are endless. And you've certainly proven that with raspberries and rose. I can't wait to make it again. And then, um, you excited my palate with the idea of pickles. And I have the book open to pickled beets with star. Anise. Pickled beets were oh. one of my favorite when I was growing up. Me my too. My grandmother always made them. Yes. And as I started to work on the book, what I found is that pickled beets get along so well with a variety of other flavors. Mm. And then a friend of mine in San Francisco said that his mother's secret was to add star anise to pickled beets. And now that's become my secret ingredient as well. What a fabulous flavor combination there. I love it. Everything from the pickles to the beets, golden beets with ginger, all of the hearty greens that you speak about as well. 
and that pair so beautifully with a summer sandwich. There are recipes galore. It's really the best book I've seen on canning, Kevin, and a, a great compliment to you. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank most you. certainly. I would love to have you back. Would you join us seasonally, please? Because you've inspired me to put more up. My mom is a great canner, in fact. So I, I would love to keep up with your canning, and I hope that you'll come back on the radio and share the virtues of the coming seasons. I would love to come back anytime. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, of course, a pleasure. Kevin, it was a true pleasure, and I thank you once again for sharing your tremendous passion. He is Kevin West, a canning evangelist and the author of Saving the Season. It's a colorful guide and cookbook to preserving the bounty all throughout the year. You can find his recipe excerpted from Tasting Table for his raspberry jam with rosé posted on my website at chefjamie.com with a direct link so that you can bring his cookbook into your kitchen or onto your your tablet. And once again, Kevin, uh, it was my pleasure. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Happy preserving. (laughs) Thank you. We're sharing our culinary passion right here on the radio. So stay tuned. There's more delicious conversation right after this. Welcome back and cheers to you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. We're going to shake it up today with a unique idea for cocktail creations. So are you ready? All you need is some friends, some libations, and a mason jar. You heard me right. Eric Prum and Josh Williams have a new take on shaken, not stirred. A couple of years ago, they created the Mason Shaker, an iconic invention that transforms a mason jar into a cocktail shaker, and they just released a cookbook all about it. It's called Shake, and they're offering a new perspective on cocktails. Eric has stopped by to dish, and I'm glad to talk with you, Eric. Welcome. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing? Doing great. And you? I'm doing very, very well. I'm so glad. Good. Okay. I love the invention. I love the throwback to the mason jar sort of uh, mentality and perspective. I love the vintage appeal. I love that you can serve drinks to sip straight from the mason jar. And I know you say that you don't particularly need a mason shaker, although I know it's your goal to get one into every household. I really like your perspective on cocktail design. So if you would, explain your very seasonal and straightforward approach. Josh and I both feel that cocktails should be fun, simple, and social. Both of us make seasonally fresh uh, cocktails at home. Both of us really like to entertain. Um, So we kind of decided that we wanted to create a seasonal cocktail recipe book over the span of a year that featured ingredients that we would source uh, locally and seasonally throughout the year. So we shot the book over the span of a year and created cocktails basically that that featured ingredients that made sense at that time of the year. Our cocktails are are quite simple. You never see them with more than four or five ingredients. We make cocktails in a way that are uh, that's relatively approachable too. I love the idea that at the peak of summer when the thyme in my garden is just overgrown and the peaches or the stone fruit are so just spectacularly sweet that your recipes are very much inspired by the season itself. So we're deep in the heart of summer, let's say. You're in Brooklyn. I'm in Southern California. What's at your farmer's market? What inspires you to create a cocktail tonight? Yeah, we actually just uh, released a farmer's market cocktail series where we actually uh, went to the local markets and sort of picked up whatever, you know, whatever we saw or thought that was a, that was really 
really fresh. I mean, peaches right now are excellent. There's all kinds of cocktails you can make um, with peaches. Josh and I actually got our start in all of this, uh, infusing bourbons with peaches at home. Ooh, uh, we nice. make lots of signature uh, recipes sort of based around that concept. Um, we would actually infuse the bourbon in mason jars. Uh, this is actually all the way back in college. Uh, in our dorm rooms, and we would uh, make drinks from that. And, and that was actually the source and inspiration for both the Mason Shaker and for our, our perspective on cocktails. So wait, do you just slice the peaches and infuse them or macerate them in the bourbon, and for how long? The cool thing about that is you can macerate them for really as long as you want, and the, the peach flavor becomes more and more potent as you let them set. You can create all of the cocktails from shake in a jar in a Mason Shaker, but then also in a traditional cocktail shaker. But it's all about the shake. And there are actually instructions in your book on a short, a medium, and a long shake, right? It's really important. At the very beginning of our book, one of the things that we set out to do is to really write out clearly the, the basics of making cocktails. A lot of people sort of see making cocktails as a, as a black box. So one of the first things that we do is explain the reasoning for different lengths or terms of shaking. When you go to a bar, you kind of see a, a bartender maybe or a mixologist creating a drink and you don't know that there's actually a rhyme and reason to the length of the shaking of the cocktail. The longer that you shake the cocktail, the colder it will get and the longer it will get, so the less alcohol as the ice melts into it, so you can sort of lengthen a strong cocktail. Uh, cocktails that are served straight up are often shaken longer because they're not sitting on ice, so they get colder, and you can generally dilute a cocktail a little bit by shaking it longer. Uh, the ice breaking up sort of aerates the cocktail as well, so there's a, a lot that goes into it, but at the beginning of the book, we try and break down each element of creating a cocktail into its essence and into the easy, you know, the easiest and most understandable way of of sort of making a drink. Yeah, I love the idea of short for three seconds, medium for 10, and long for 15. I tend to shake long yeah. because I like, as you say, that the drink gains body and texture the longer you shake as the ice sort of acts as, I think, the, the textural component that brings everything together. And especially during the summer, I like a slightly more diluted drink because it's a little more right. refreshing um, and it, it lasts longer as well as you drink it in the heat. So I'm a long shake kind of girl, but I don't care how many right. times you shake it. I will tell you, I cannot wait to make your spicy mezcalita. Spicy mezcalita is a, is a super popular one. Yes. Uh, for us, we had decided that what we wanted to do was to bring out the the mezcal. I mean, with the mezcalita, a lot of people aren't too familiar with mezcal. It's very, very similar to uh, tequila. We call it the scotch of tequilas. It has a very smoky flavor. Right. The spicy mezcalita is one of those drinks that is really popular both with myself and Josh, with our friends. I think we started making it almost just a, a few years ago. But it's a very approachable way for people to understand and taste mezcal and taste the difference between it and, say, a traditional uh, tequila. Right, and I think it does elevate the margarita because it gives you that smoky, really sort of rich flavor that, as you say, becomes oh, a, a regular in your cocktail rotation. Can we share that recipe on my website? I would yeah, love absolutely. to have everybody making, yeah. thank you, a spicy mezcalita. We'll have it posted right away at chefjamie.com. Yep. Awesome. 
we love your cocktail creations in this book and that you're spreading the gospel on uh, on cocktail fun for sure. And I thank you very much for sharing your passion. If you'd like to learn more about the Mason Shaker, um, I think it's a, a super fun tool that everyone should have in their cocktail arsenal. Um, you will be a culinary hero when everyone asks, hey, what's that? You can learn more and find more information about Shake, a new perspective on cocktails. The new book release as well at MasonShaker.com. And you can find the Mezcalita and excerpted recipe from the book Shake at ChefJamie.com with a direct link to bring the book into your kitchen. It was a pleasure, Eric. Thanks so much once again. Thank you very much, Jamie. So that brings us to the end of another hour of scrumptious conversation. I thank you for listening and want to ensure that you can always find me serving up seconds. I'm at chefjamie.com. You'll find detailed recipes heard on this show, videos and more. www.chefjamie.com. And Please become a friend and a fan at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Oh, and Pinterest as well uh, at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll leave you with this. It's what I like to call my last bite, my last ounce of scrumptious culinary information. I like to say it'll make you a culinary hero. And I took some inspiration myself from a classic Jacques Pepin recipe that was shared during his 1980s television show called Essential Pepin. I hope that you find some inspiration this week and attempt to make it. It is super simple and you can use whatever fruit you have in the fridge or preferably sweet and succulent uh, right on the counter. My summer dessert soup is just a four ingredient recipe that uh, will definitely make you a culinary hero. Whether you have a papaya or a mango or maybe some peaches and plums around, I like to combine the fruit with some pineapple juice and a half of a freshly squeezed lime with a pinch of salt in the blender so that you get that really beautiful, silky smooth consistency. And you want to puree it thoroughly and then chill the fruit soup until it's ice cold. It makes a sweet succulent puree that is really a refreshing first course. You could serve it in demitasse or just glass shooters, or you could use it as a palate cleanser for dessert. And I love what Jacques does. In fact, he likes to tone down the sweetness. And by the way, if you need to add a little bit of super fine sugar, you can. But to counter the incredible bricks or the sugary sweetness of the fruit, he serves it with sour cream dolloped on top and slices of toasted brioche alongside. Now that sounds fabulous, doesn't it? I'll post the recipe with ingredients and measurements on Facebook at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I hope you'll meet me here next Sunday as the delicious conversation continues. A great big thank you to all of you who voted for the Golden Foodie Awards. This show has been nominated once again, and I am no doubt flattered and delighted. I will continue to bring you the cutting-edge information on the wide world of food and share my passion every Sunday. So meet me here next Sunday. Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.